Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Um, I'm Iris and I'm joined in the studio here with Aaliyah, Lisbeth and also Fox. How are we all? Pretty good. <laughs> good, thanks. <laughs> um, I'd just like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. We're broadcasting over the lands of the Kulin Nations. These lands are sovereign to the Kulin Nations. Their sovereignty was never ceded. Genocide and colonisation continued. I'd like to pay our respects to the Bunurong and Rundri people over whose lands we're primarily broadcasting over. I'd like to acknowledge any Indigenous listeners tuning in today. Um, one thing that came up um, during the week for me was looking at a lot of tweets at the Imagining Abolition Conference in Mianjin, Brisbane. Um, there's a lot of like First Nation speakers talking about um, racism in prison, abolition, and I definitely recommend listeners check that out, as well as there was a conference in the same city by Scarlet Alliance that had raised a lot of important issues around decri- decriminalising sex work, um, what are the issues with borders and sex work, and also justice for Indigenous sex workers, sister girls, brother boys, many, many things. So those awesome things were things I noticed happened in this week um, that I thought I just mentioned at the start of the show. But now for this show today we have, I'm going to talk to Aaliyah Ahmed, who I'm going to introduce shortly, and later I'm going to be talking to um, Rachel Perks and Bridget Beldis of Moral Panic, which is a production that's on at the moment. Um, so first to Aliyah Ahmed. Aliyah Ahmed is a queer Muslim women, woman of colour who was originally from Pakistan, a classic, um, uh, here we go. a classic third culture kid who grew up moving around. She's had to learn about Pakistan's history and culture from a distance. Her university degree is focused on decolonization and race relations in Southeast Asia. Currently, she works with Democracy in Colour, a racial justice organisation that is led by and for people of colour. When she's not taking her cat to the pub and a pram, she's usually attempting to keep her plants alive in the garden. Um, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio. <laughs> and I really like, appreciate some humour in a bio. Um, Thank you, Iris. Um, uh, and you're a big fan of cats. Let's... I am. I've got a little fur baby, and his name is Chandler, and he thinks he's a dog. He's real cute. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> um, so Aaliyah is speaking at Multitudes, a queer, trans, intersex, indigenous, people of colour forum on tomorrow night from 6 to 11 p.m. at Loot Bar. And the night is being emceed by Mama Alto with speakers and performers, including... Um, Elizabeth, you want to speak to some of them? Sure, I can speak to those. So our speakers include Annette um, Zeros, who's a, a Rundry elder who's going to be doing both the Welcome to Country and um, um, speaking about her experiences. Amal Aliotta Lu, um, who's a Fafafina um, um, activist. Um, obviously Alia. Um, Jean Lim, who's a, a postgraduate student at Monash, who does in Monash. Oh, well, Latrobe. Uh, I'm pretty sure both, um, but they, they they work both at um, Latrobe and Monash, um, and their work is around um, 
uh, experiences of um, uh, um, gay um, Asian gay men in in in, in um, and the, the impacts of racism um, on their um, health um, uh, um, within that within the community. Although Jean, I think, will be speaking on some other issues, not necessarily their research. Um, and Raj Ahmedi from Rise will also be speaking, um, and we'll have some spoken word performance from Charlotte. Um, I think it's a different organisation. Rouge is speaking. Um, that's Colour Code. That's right. Yeah. Sorry for Colour Code. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so, how did the You Are Loved, you Are Loved Collective that is initiated this? How did that come about? Um, uh, so, the, the collective was uh, started um, during the the Australian Marriage Law Survey um, last year, um, really in response to the, um, the really toxic campaign that was unleashed against um, uh, LGBTIQ uh, communities uh, by the, particularly the religious right um, and the need to affirm the right of our communities to exist um, and to um, experience um, love and solidarity. Um, and since then we've um, been involved in a range... Um, I think the first activity we were involved in was producing a range of posters affirming the right of uh, uh, queer, queer people to exist, um, and that, um, that, and the right to experience love um, and uh, affirmation. Um, but we've also done, um, been involved in um, fundraising campaigns for Justice for Sisters, which is a Malaysian trans women support um, network, and also interns. And we also did a fundraiser for refugees on Manus, um, like last year as well. Cool. Um, what are you going to be speaking on tomorrow night, Aaliyah? Um well, I thought that I would, so as you mentioned in my little bio, um, I am originally from Pakistan, um, but I grew up in Vietnam, Kuwait, Malaysia, and England. Um, and so, but I've had a very like deep cultural connection to Pakistan in terms of, you know, my family and um, going back and visiting. And so I thought I would talk a little bit about um, that experience of having to, the experience that people of color, like I specifically had, as well as other people of color that I know, um, not on behalf of them, but something I've noticed is that there is something um, quite white in the coming out, um, in, their, in people's coming out stories that um, I don't think a lot of my fellow people of color have had, especially from Pakistan or from Muslim backgrounds, have had um, that sort of luxury, not that it's been a very luxurious thing, but have had that experience in the same way. Um, and. Ironically, interestingly enough, um, going back to Pakistan and visiting every couple of years, um, I've noticed there's a really big trans community and that mm. always used to confuse me a little bit because everyone would say how it was such an oppressive country and this and that. But actually, um, after doing a bit of reading up on it, the trans community called the Hijra community, um, they've existed for centuries, way before British colonization. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about that, um, I guess that irony and the, um, co when colonization came, so did essentially homophobia and the laws. Um, and it's not a perfect country. And it's not like the most, you know, equal country ever, but it's interesting because um, they there is a lot in the literature on fluid sexuality and gender um, from pre-colonization. Yeah, definitely. That's such an important um, point that people sometimes aren't, don't realise. Um, so you've like studied a lot on decolonization and race relations and you've written a, a thesis on it in Southeast Asia. Do you want to 
talk about that a bit? Yeah. So um, when I was uh, when I was doing my undergrad, my thesis um, looked at the different perceptions of the Malay Communist Party, um, and what I guess I came about of it was that I realized it was very it was the politics was very tied in with the race itself. So. Communist Party was associated largely with the Chinese Malay population and that actually resulted in a lot of um, ethnic tension and it was interestingly enough another example of um, that divide and rule and this model minority of the different the British I guess pinning different ethnic minorities against each other um, because the real fear is that it, they're pretty terrifying when they all come together in solidarity um, and then as a result, how different people from different um, countries who are people of color, like South Asian people of color, um, and how I also talked about how the queer um, South Asian diaspora has come together online um, as a result of, you know, migration and moving around to so many different places. So while the people of color South Asian identity exists, they may not be actually living in their homeland. Mm. Yes, that was you would have written many thousands of words and all that. I'm sure it's like a very fascinating read. Um, but since writing that, you've become involved, you're, you're involved in Democracy of Colour, racial justice organisation led by people of colour. Yeah. Could you tell our listeners what about what you're working on with them and what the campaigns are doing at the moment? Yeah, so um, Democracy in Colour... Um, was founded about two years ago um, and as you mentioned it's up led by people of color for people of color um, and it's really around I guess building the capacity of the people of, of people of color in Australia um, and recognizing that um, everyone has inherent worth um, and I guess also yeah upskilling different people of color and bringing everyone together um, and kind of removing that narrative that you know, there's different people that we can be pinned against each other. So we all come together. And so currently one of our campaigns that we're doing is called Stronger Than Fear. And that's around the um, Vic election coming up. And we're, uh, I guess, trying to convince people and um, trying to encourage people to vote Stronger Than Fear so that they don't um, fall prey to race baiting tactics of different politicians and making sure that they're voting um, an informed decision that isn't using race as a distraction um, for other things that are going on, like, you know, job security and healthcare and education. Um, and it is just obviously people of color in the media are so um, disproportionately reported on negatively. So we're just trying to, I guess, break down that narrative because it's quite harmful, obviously, and toxic. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's very concerning how that's a dominant um, campaign with many political parties are yeah. campaigning on at the moment and it's being fought over at the election. And it's, yeah, that sort of racism is incredibly messed up. Um, how can people get involved in? Yeah, great. That? So um, you can follow the organisation on Twitter, which is Democracy Colour. Um, and if you go onto the website, which is democracyincolour.org, um, there's a link to our campaign and you can sign the pledge saying that you're going to be voting stronger than fear. On Wednesday, we actually have a um, our final phone banking um, session at town, a trades hall, I think. Um, the web, all the actual details are on the website. Um, but yeah, we're trying, we're calling up um, the Frankston electorate because they're the most marginal, the largest marginal um, seat in Victoria. 
um, and I guess just trying to encourage um, more pledges, pledges so that the um, the people can vote stronger than fear. So yeah, check checking out the website. I probably probably is the first thing to do, as well as the Facebook page, which is Democracy in Color. And there's been really regular updates on that. Um, on how to get involved and if you are a person of color or an ally you're welcome to join this campaign and widely if you're a person of color you are welcome to join the team <laughs> yeah awesome um yeah i'm wondering what it's been like working on that cam- campaign for the last bit um it's been interesting and eye-opening i think uh we were in frankston we've got some people in frankston right now actually um but the last couple weekends, we've had people in Frankston doing door knocking. Um, so I went and sat um, at one of the farmers markets or Sunday markets. Um, and it's really interesting to see how um, when you turn the conversation to an issues based conversation, um, how open people people actually are to listening to the other side. So it's it's been actually quite positive um, overall um, because when you once you start talking to people about you know what matters the most to them and a lot of them like most people are like we want good health care and we want education and we want mm. jobs and community hubs and the fact that you know current politicians are trying to justify putting police in schools and building high security youth prisons um that's such a distraction so it's really good to like talk to them and sound it out and they're like actually yeah that makes sense that i don't know why we're spending money on this and yeah, it's kind of heartwarming, <laughs> but it's it's hard because there's a lot of emotional labor that's involved in it, especially for people of color, which is why this campaign's also open to allies um, because it's yeah not very fair, I guess, for all people of color to bear that emotional labor on their own. <laughs> mm, um, yeah, for sure. Um, I was wondering if um, you had anything to add, Lisbeth, that I have left off they'd want to mention about the event? Uh, yeah, the one speak one um, performer who will be on the night, this is a spoken word performer, Charlotte Erasia Raymond, oh, yeah. um, who will be um, performing um, some of their poetry um, and also um, participate in the, uh, I guess, question and answer session that we'll have at the end, after the speakers on the night. Yes. Um, but the only issue is that almost all the tickets are gone. So um, we're going to be putting a call out to people who have booked to see, to make sure that they're coming, because if mm. they're not, then we can have a list of, for people who are interested in coming but don't currently have a ticket for them to go onto that list. Yes, and if you're just tuned in, you're tuned into querying the uh, on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Iris, and I'm joined in the studio with Elizabeth and, uh, and Aaliyah, um, and also Fox in the background. Um streaming live at 3cr.org.au 8.55am on your AM dial and on digital radio. Um, and the event that Lisbeth was just mentioned was the Multitudes Cutie Puck Forum that's on tomorrow night from 6 to 11pm at Loop Bar. So check that out if you're interested to get a spot because it seems like they're almost all gone. Um, and yeah, so get onto that, listeners. Stay tuned to Querying the Air. You're tuned into Querying the Air on 3CR Community Radio, and that was Kate with Natural Woman. What an amazing artist she is. Um, and I'm jo- joining the studio with Lisbeth, Aaliyah, and Fox, um, and we were speaking about a range of things, including multitudes. That's on tomorrow night at Loop Bar. 
um, we thought we'd turn to Elia's um, bio, which mentioned that she takes her cat to the pub in a pram. Yep. Is this really a thing? <laughs> it is. It is. I take him in a little pram, um, and he hangs out at the pub with me. Um, and he's real good. He just sits there while I just, you know, I'm sitting there with my beer. He just sits there with some catnip <laughs> and has a pretty good time. <laughs> how much catnip? Oh, like it's up to him. It depends on how he's feeling, you know. <laughs> it's there if he needs it. If he doesn't, it's all good. <laughs> what, what type of cat? Um, so he was a rescue. Um, there's a bit of a mix of everything. He's all white. He's the best white mm. ally I know. <laughs> and the person of color. Um, and he um, is really fluffy, so he's probably part ragdoll, they think. As in they, the vet. <laughs> the all-knowing vets. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So I can't really wear anything black ever again. But, you know, it's so worth it. <laughs> ah, because of the white fur. Yeah, he's a big shedder. Oh. We've got um, we've got a tuxedo and a tortoiseshell, so we basically can't wear any clothes ever. <laughs> <laughs> all of the all of the colours. <laughs> we do we wear just, clothes. Yeah, no, we just demonstrated by today. <laughs> just for listeners at home, we're all very clothed <laughs> and covered in a layer of cat hair. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. If only we had some cats in the studio, that would be great. Oh, so good. I think just to tip water on everything. That would be so <laughs> great. And they'd just, like, yeah, cause such havoc and it would be hilarious. It would be hilarious. But, yeah, <laughs> um, it probably isn't going to happen. Some people will probably be allergic to all that. True. Mm. There's been some really good replacement comfort animals, though. Like, I saw recently a hospital had... Um, to was it alpacas? Yeah, alpacas. Um, one was called Ed Sheeran, and one was called Pancake. Um, but I think they're good for like people with allergies. So hypoallergenic. Yeah. Ah. So yeah. you know, get an alpaca. Get around the alpacas. <laughs> Alternatively, mm. do they fit in prams? Mm. Can I find it? Can I find a alpaca size? You definitely fit in cars because we watched a really cool video of a person <laughs> walking there one and then taking it for a ride in a taxi. Mm. Important content here, Iris. Important. Actually, I'm going to link this back to <laughs> the, the former Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, after the postal Whoa. survey. After, <laughs> let me get to this point. After the postal survey in December last year, he had a go at single queers living alone with their cats. And I'd think, oh. like, if only I could afford to like live alone with cats. Like, exactly. Turnbull, you have no idea how much exactly. I'd love that. And stop if you're... BS stereotyping. Um, I don't know. Cheaper. I don't know. It's very expensive to live alone. Yeah, with your cat. exactly. So what a luxury. Touch. What yeah. a luxury. Like, because not many people. No. Most of us can't, and we have to share housing with different people. Um, and cats are a point of like care and a lot of work in different places we live. And I don't know what the stats would be, but there's a thing with queers and cats that. Um, I don't know. What is the connection between queerness and cats? Or dogs. Um, and dogs. I think that um, Australia's got one of the highest pet ownerships in the world or something like that, mm -hmm. That's like which came up around the tenants' yeah. right stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, cats are pretty 
like a heaps more independent and um, anti-authoritarian. So there's a really yep. good page called Caps Against Capitalism, which everyone should get onto, and they're spamming everyone's feed to their max right now, thanks to Facebook algorithms. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's just because of their anti-capitalist nature. That's why we're so intertwined, queers and cats. And that whole idea of comfort animals very important, especially. You know, you've got you've got your friends, your little furry friends that'll always be there for you. Yeah. yeah. As long as the friends are furries. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> your yeah. love does not endorse that statement. <laughs> And yeah, like cats as symbols of revolution, like the wildcats strike, like sparking off like revolts in different places. Sabo Tabby, symbol of the IWW. I'm just thinking also about the Black Panther movement. They're big mm. cats. Yep, for sure. So that is that whole anti-authoritarian thing, I think, of like reclaiming their space and their power, and they're very powerful people. Cats. Yep. Very powerful beings. <laughs> I feel like yeah. um, cats also have like really good consent politics because um, you, they let you know real fast if they're not into something and are super aggressive in getting pets when they want it, but they are only around people when they want to be. So pretty good idols, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good. Boundaries. Um, <laughs> Yes, you're tuned into Queering the Ad and 3CR Community Radio, and we're talking about uh, queers and cats at the moment. Um, um, it's, it's been a fun time talking about that. I thought I'd just bring it back to some a different thing just briefly. Um, so I'm wondering what's like in, like inspiring you politically at the moment? I mean, there's a lot of bad things happening everywhere, but... Do you have, like, a small example of something happening? What is it? Does anyone have anything? <laughs> oh. um, it's a big question, isn't it? So much stuff. So much stuff. I think, like, there is a lot of, like, this organising against um, racism at this election, against sexual violence. In the le- There's so much outrageous cases of sexual violence and misogyny mm-hmm. in, like, left and progressive spaces at the moment. And it's quite vile, and there's a lot of people pushing back against that, and we should be supporting survivors and not covering up abuse. I I think the important thing is that the reality is that that violence that we're hearing about is violence that's always been happening. What's what's new is that people it's coming out, and people are being supported, and people are being Mm -hmm. called to account. That's that's the I guess that's the thing that we can take away as a positive of the awful, the almost daily or weekly. Uh, news of uh, new <laughs> outrages by somewhere um, um, within the left somewhere. And I think it's also important to sort of see that because it's something that's always been happening and now it just sort of highlights that anyone um, is, um, most people you know are probably victim survivors or most people you know are probably have known someone who is and it just highlights the prevalence of it, which in a good way though highlights that we need to focus on this and we need to prioritise this for something to change yeah. um it's not just done by one side or whatever so yeah totally and i think something that's coming really positive out of the current stuff coming out around various parties um is that a lot of people have known and had to deal with that mm-hmm. by themselves and the more people that speak out the more that survivors can come together and change the culture um and make it safe for each other so mm-hmm. i think that's been a really positive thing yeah. especially over the last week yeah. Yeah. Even, like, there's posters all around um, 
there's been been leaflets going out to different suburbs talking about sexual harassers in some organisations. There's been posters going up, and even if they're funded by rival organisations, it doesn't um, matter. Like, as long as it comes out, is that's way more important um, than the gains of covering something up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's a big ongoing struggle, but yeah, there's so many people fighting against it and all power to that. Um, thanks to Fox, Elizabeth and Aaliyah for joining me in the studio and it's been a pleasure to have you all. Thank you. Thank you. And you're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. That was Bardoso with I Want More. Um, and I'm Iris and I'm joined in the studio now by writer Rachel Perks and director Bridget Balladus of Moral Panic. Moral Panic is a Northgate Town Hall, uh, is on at the Northgate Town Hall Out Centre. Um, and it's been on since the 14th and it's going until the 24th of November. It's described as a deep dive into witchcraft and dark comedy that dares audiences to venture to strange and uncomfortable places. The Moral Panic cast includes performer and theatre maker Kai Bradley, act- actor and theatre maker, theatre maker Chanel, um, Chanella Macri, actor Eva Seymour and actor musical theatre performer Jennifer Vuleshi. Um, yeah, so first I thought I'd start off by asking you how it's been going. How is Moral, being, Moral Panic um, being received? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going It's going well. It's been a real whirlwind as ever. Like you, we've been um, planning the show for about two years and kind of doing research and development. And so it's always, a, it feels pretty wild when you finally open the show. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been feeling really good and we've been getting really good responses from queer audiences, which is always really exciting because that's who the work is really for. Um so, yeah, it's feeling pretty good. We're quite tired. Mm. <laughs> We're looking forward to a couple of days off. But, um, yeah, I think it's been feeling good. Yeah, it's been going really well. We've had some really wonderful feedback from audiences, um, which is always amazing. You know, complete strangers come up and tell you that they that they felt really personally affected by it and spoken to mm. by it, um, which is definitely the goal. Mm. Yeah, that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, I saw the preview which was really striking oh did you really um (laughs) like yeah like the invigorating sort of like character development monologues and dialogues and interaction and amazing sad and atmospheric sound and there was a lot to take in and a lot of like tension that was explored and like really felt um palpably between the characters Mm -hmm. um could you tell listeners some more about what's being explored in moral panic Mm-hmm. Um, so the play kind of, it, from a plot perspective, it starts with three young witches meeting in a forest um, and they've come there together to hex the, uh, one of their uncles who's this kind of terrible, um, uh, violent patriarchal figure. Uh, and the play starts in a really sort of high genre place. So it's like mm. sort of the craft meets Sabrina, kind of like um, lots of jokes, lots of real horror tropes. Like, you know, you feel like you're Jump watching the great horror film with, with fun queer gags. And then it kind of goes to a really different place where the characters leave the confines and the sort of structures and oppressions of the world that they live in 
even to go somewhere completely different and they kind of um, are confronted with a more authentic version of themselves and process a lot of really big um, queer stuff. Mm. Yeah, Rachel actually described it the other day as kind of a kind of queer purgatory. Yeah. Where you're where you have to kind of go and like, yeah, confront your own um, sense of self, but also like also confront your kind of internalized um, homophobia or, you know, transphobia or, you know, that that kind of like, <laughs> um, I don't know, direct confrontation with your own history and your own kind of outing. <laughs> Yeah, I think it, I think it's quite cathartic for a lot of people to watch um, who've ex- had experiences that are similar. Um, so yeah, a lot of a lot of women, a lot of queer people, are kind of feeling like it's very cathartic because they get to kind of see experiences that they've had on stage where they might have never been able to actually see that on stage before. Yeah, which is um, fun. Yeah, on that point of catharsis, um, do you think anger is a helpful tool in imagining a future with reference to moral panic? I think anger can be really constructive. I think anger can be dangerous as well. Like I think if anger doesn't Mm. find forms of expression and I think it has to be focused and you have to be pretty smart about your anger. Otherwise, I think it can do more damage to you than it can to other people. But I think, I mean... We, you know, the first show that we made together was called Angry Sex. Um, mm. And I think a lot of our work is speaking to that kind of um, queer feminist rage that's sort of about, you know, like the world isn't the way that I want it to be and I feel angry about that. And rather than denying myself that anger, I'm going to use that as a tool of propulsion to try and help me change things. Yeah, and to get pe- and to kind of connect with people. Like I think that's something that's nice, like in terms of like a- having anger in common uh, and frustration in common that you can that you can kind of meet people there and, and use that tool as a way to connect and then move forward. Like I think it's about it's about being able to move through the anger rather than staying in mm. anger as a kind of as a kind of stasis or like a, a resting place. I think it's mm. it's something that you can express and then and then kind of get to a more constructive conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of the, well, all of the characters in the play are quite angry and I think in, in different ways it looks at how all of them, how containing and internalising that anger has actually damaged them and how it's it's much healthier to find forms of expression for it, I think. Yeah, do you mean in terms of anger, um, internalised inwards or internalised in outwards of people in an oppressive way? I think both. Like you see characters who turn their anger in on themselves in the play yeah. and I think you also see characters who turn it on each other in a really like um, unhelpful sort of... Aggressive way. Yeah, where mm. they where they actually end up um, critiquing people who are, who are more comfortable with themselves than they mm. are, you know, which yeah. I think is something that often happens in oppressed communities. They turn in on themselves because they don't have outlets for... Um, for their aggression or their their frustration, and I think it can. It's quite a recognisable, um, you know, if if a, if someone is queer but closeted, closeted, like it's often how they will, you know, try and express themselves is is actually by lashing out at, at people who are more comfortable or more out, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, I haven't seen other works I don't know how many works you've made together but you've made three works Angry Sex Ground Control and Moral Panic Mm -hmm. which all sort of explore queer feminist dystopian futures Mm. as well as celebrating women and queers Um, so I'm wondering what attracts you to this sort of like dystopian future and what artists have influenced your dystopian thinking 
Uh, well, I'm a real sci-fi nerd. Um, I, I don't even really know where it's come from, but I feel like I was just that kid who would sit on, sit in on the weekends and put the blinds down and watch Star Trek and watch the matrix and, you know, like watch all of these kind of, um, otherworldly explorations. And I feel like there's so much space in speculative fiction to explore other ways that we could be. Um, I feel like, I feel like I want to imagine queer feminist futures and, and I feel like that seems really straightforward to me, but um, I, it does mean that you have to change a lot of things about the world in order to get there. So it, for me, I guess it becomes science fiction or whatever, but it's really just about me imagining a political future. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I read a lot of sci-fi, I watch a lot of, and like occult and horror genre stuff. Um, I don't know. I can't really think of anyone's name to drop who would be like a real fave. I do read a lot of Ursula Le Guin, Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. All sorts of things. Do you have anyone, Bridget? Yeah, all sorts of things. And I think, um, I mean, I think Ursula K. Le Guin's a really a big one. I think Margaret Atwood's kind of um, an interesting one as well, particularly mm. less so probably for this work, but definitely for other work that we've made. She definitely makes some interesting dystopias. Yeah. Um, and I think, I mean, there's, and then there's theatre makers, um, particularly in America, that we're, that we're also kind of um, aesthetically very inspired by rather than, and I guess that's less to do with um, dystopian kind of vision and more to do with kind of femme queer aesthetics. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of people making work. Um, in New York, we've both spent a bit of time over there who make work that is really sort of like queer and, um, and they've been doing it for so long now that people are kind of used to it, that kind of super high femme queer aesthetic. Um, but there's not many other people doing it here. And so we're kind of, you know, trying it in our own way and everybody's like, Oh, don't know, don't know what that is. Haven't seen that before, (laughs) but it is happening in a lot of other places. It's just not happening a lot right here. Yeah. Um, I heard from a cast member Noni might have been someone in the background of this show definitely (laughs) (laughs) musician yeah Yeah, she's Um, a huge influence on me I listened to um, hopelessness obsessively while I was writing the play Um, I like to think the play is not hopeless but then I mean Noni's not hopeless Um, but yeah she was a massive influence on on the work that definitely made its way in and um, Mary Leeworthy, our sound designer, they, um, I think they really took that on and they're also a big fan and, yeah, definitely big influence. Mm. Um, so, some things I've read um, that have made some really, like, cogent sort of critiques and put things like what's Atwood's um, latest thing that became a TV series? Um, the Handmaid's Tale? That one? The Handmaid's Tale is sort of, yeah, um, I suppose, like, yeah, a lot of POC and Indigenous writers have written about sort of the white feminism, fem- white feminism of some of a lot of dystopian writing like that, and pointed out for a lot of like people of color, Indigenous people, I, and also more generally in different oppres- oppressions. Like this uh, world is like the dystopia for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think just if what if leader, I mean, if listeners want to look at one thing, I'm thinking, I think. Nukagori wrote an article about Atwood's work. Um, so I'm thinking, what are your thoughts on taking in that, um, the dystopia of the now for many people? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, Hamid's Tale was something that I read when I was like 16 or 17 years old and I was really shook by it. Uh, I was shaken by it. Um, And I think, yeah, when it came out and there was a lot of feedback from people being like, well, your dystopia is just something that happens and has happened to people of colour, you know, that kind of... um, Erasure. Yeah, the erasure and the like, the yeah, having your humanity taken away from you is something that's you know, often an everyday reality to people of colour. I think that was, like, I definitely did a lot of education, self-education on that because I was like, okay, I didn't see that. Um, that's something that I that I need to think more about and know more about. And um, we, we try on all of our work to work with the most sort of, like, interesting group of people that we can and people who have different experiences to us so that we're not just kind of, like, telling a story that's only about our personal experience. I think that's really important mm. to kind of fill your rehearsal room and, with people and make them feel like their opinion is just as important as your opinion and that they're mm. really welcome to speak. And I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's something that we work really hard to do and we'll continue to work to do in all of our work. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important to do that. Um, I was reading an interview published in Witness Performance and it was a question raised about masculinity Um do we see more ways of doing healthy masculinity um, masculinity in sort of women and non-binary people? Um, I think that comes up a little bit in Moral Panic. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, I think we do. <laughs> yeah, there's a struggle in there because there's, a, uh, I guess, a trans mask character in the show. Um, and it's about how do you, you know, how do you come to terms with, um, with, with a masculinity that is like, doesn't belong to someone else it's yours and I think it's about accepting that part of yourself and not and not demonizing it because there are healthy expressions of of all there are healthy ways to express all gender um and I think that masculinity in air quotes which you can't see on the radio but like I think there are healthy ways of doing it I think there's just a lot of unhealthy ways of doing it and we see a lot of that and I think what you see in moral panic is a character that's having incredible um you know, conflict with um, with who they who they are and and how to how to kind of get comfortable with who they are when there's an element of themselves that is that identifies with masculinity. You know mm-hmm. that that's really kind of um, uncomfortable for them for a long time. And the town that the show is set in, Sweetwood, is a fictional town, mm-hmm. and all of the male uh, cis male figures that are talked about in the show. Um, are really like horrible influences. And so I think for that character to grow up there and feel that and and know all of these terrible men, you know, and and not have anyone that they can look to to be like, oh, okay, anyone who's, who's genderqueer, anyone who's trans, anyone who might just be like a lovely, gentle cis man, <laughs> they kind of don't have any people in their um, people in their lives like that that they can see and therefore imagine like a different version of masculinity. I mm. think that's kind of part of their struggle. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, a big a big one. Um mm. and for anyone that's tuned in, you're tuned into Queering the Out on three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM on your AM dial, streaming live at three CR dot org dot AU and on digital radio. I'm Iris and I'm in the studio here with Rachel Perks and Bridget Balladus of Moral Panic. Um yeah, I think this com next question comes up goes to a, a thing that's a major part of moral panic in terms of a kind of queer and feminist imagination. Um, I'm wondering what sort of roles and questions are raised by witches, dreams and astrology in speculating on the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I really think that there's a real resurgence happening at the moment with witchcraft and and astrology in the queer community. Um, I, I think I think it's about trying to find a um, an alternate power source, an alternate power structure. Um, and try, particularly in the current political climate, looking like looking for a new um, governing principle, a way to like find like through line and guidance in your life that doesn't have anything to do with um, patriarchal leadership, yeah. you know, and goes back to something that is actually like an ancient um, kind of femme power source. Um, so I think I think there's something really that we're trying to tap into around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I was doing a lot of research on uh, on witchcraft, I I started reading a lot of texts that were sort of about um, the birth of capitalism and the end of feudalism and how mm. uh, that sort of was when the witch trials happened, a lot of yeah. the witch trials happened and how a lot of what was happening then was about disempowering women and feminine people by taking away and monetizing their systems of knowledge. Um, so like healers and leaders and, um, you know, people within the community who were um, carers and things like that, who were uh, normally like women or feminine people, those people were then disempowered by through the witch hunts and by doing so that meant that uh their knowledge systems were written off as being you know fantastical and stupid and it's like actually all of those knowledge systems are still interesting they're still powerful there's still resources that that can be used and i think they're coming back a lot to people for yeah exactly the same reasons that bridget says it's because we need we need other things to look to because it feels really hard at the moment to find things to grasp onto that make you feel safe that make you feel recognized and powerful yeah Mm. Yeah. Um, so returning to a thing I touched upon earlier but didn't get into properly, um, yeah, the sort of tension, energy and connection between the characters was really, like, striking. Um, the sort of drama and h- humour and the fear and all the things that was happening around the set, it was really well done. What was it like working with the cast? They're a dream. Yeah, they've been. <laughs> they're a wonderful. They're a wonderful cast, and they're and they've been incredibly generous um, of themselves um, in the in the process. Um, and it's and it's been. I mean, the the good thing about our room has been that it is a very. Um, it has been a very safe space. We've worked really hard. We've got quite a big team. I don't know how many of this there are, but there must be about four. 14, 13. Yeah, something like that. Like maybe 13 of us, including, you know, cast, crew and mm. creatives. Um, and we've worked very hard for that to be a team where there isn't actually any um, cis men on the team. So everyone's um, woman identified or non-binary or genderqueer. Um, and that's lovely. Mm. And it means that the room has felt really safe, which has really um, helped those actors to actually um, approach that content because it's deeply personal content I guess um or you're asking the actors to go to a place that is like very deeply interpersonally connected and I think it really requires a a real attention Mm. to space in the rehearsal room to get to get close to something that feels genuinely intimate and genuinely tense and you know um and for them to like be able to hold that on stage you need to have established something very true Mm. I think we really wanted our rehearsal room to not feel like a traditional rehearsal room. And so we put a few sort of rituals in the space to make everyone feel like this, we're taking this seriously, you know, like we're not just making fun of this this witchcraft. We're not making fun of the politics. We're not making fun of the queerness. We're celebrating it, but we're also like holding space for it. And we're, um, 
we're making things feel sacred. So we had like an altar in the room and on day one we made everyone um, tell, you know, talk about their preferred pronouns and, and their star sign and like, you know, like we kind of wanted to make a space that felt different, that felt um, like it honoured a lot of these things rather than just using them as material for drama. Um, it really felt like it was about bringing your whole self to it and celebrating all of yourself. Mm, yeah, awesome. Um, did... Yeah, did any, any of how the actors t took on the script, did that change how you saw the show and how they, like, brought that to life, I guess? Um, I mean, I th yes, always. Like, I think it's always you, you imagine the character one way and then yeah. when, when you start working with the actor, it's always, um, you know, you always get something slightly different and it's very exciting, I think, that moment where you're like, I, I had no idea, but that's, you know, what you're, what you're giving me is actually much more exciting than what I imagined. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's always a really thrilling part of the process. Um, and, I mean, I think for a couple of the actors there is content in there that's actually, that really resonates with them personally. Um, and so that's always really exciting as well to watch someone kind of find find in the character something that you know that actually resonates with their own life mm. yeah they, it's always like we like to work very collaboratively so we don't um I I try not to when I'm writing it to um have a way that I think the line should be said or I think the scene should go yeah. um I want it to be open to interpretation because I feel like there's there's my voice but I feel like um, as the more the more voices that we have contributing to it and complicating it, the more interesting it's actually going to be. Um, my voice on its own is quite simple and straightforward. Whereas, um, yeah, you having layers and yeah, okay, it's probably not that simple. <laughs> but having layers and layers of meaning and interpretation, I think, make it even more exciting for the audience. Um, yeah, and so it's been so wonderful. They've all been really bold to just like make big choices and go there and take ownership of their characters and and I think take ownership of the play. Like you know, we saw we had. A tricky sort of um, dress rehearsal period um, a couple of things went wrong and that was really scary but the actors held really strong and they took ownership of the work and it was really great to see them um, feel brave and excited within it mm, yeah um, I have a question on some of the challenges you encountered what were they in, in making Moral Panic I mean, there's always technical challenges. Um, the set, mm. as you would have seen, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite a lot. Yeah, it's like, it's <laughs> and so it's a lot to kind of handle in terms of, um, you know, on stage. There's just there's two assistant stage managers, and yeah. they've got a lot to do. They're very busy, as you would have seen. We're running around <laughs> backstage in yeah. the dark, doing yeah. an excellent job. <laughs> so that sort of stuff's always quite challenging when you move from the rehearsal room into the theatre, and you're trying to make all of that work. It, it can be quite. Um, can be quite stressful, but I, you know, as you get further into your career, you get more used to that stress. Mm. I think, um, and then I mean, I think, what else would be challenging? I, th I think one of the biggest challenges that we come up against a lot with our work is that we're writing from a really queer perspective and from a really feminist perspective and so that means that the story often doesn't take the shape of a normal story, a traditional story, and often that means that audiences feel 
um, confused or like they didn't get it or something like that. And and really, we just want to give people an emotional, physical experience. It's not about mm. having an intellectual experience. It's not about getting it. It's not a riddle. It's like we just want them to walk away and be like, wow, I felt really moved by that or I felt really uncomfortable or I felt um, I feel excited or exhausted or whatever, you know, like that's the truth of your experience. That's what we wanted to give you. But I think often people walk away feeling frustrated or confused by it because they don't relate to the experience that's on stage. Or they want to write off that feeling. Mm. Like they, they, I think often you see people who have had a visceral response or an emotional response and then they try and negate that feeling or they try and rationalise it because they're like, well, I can't work out why I feel, I feel so, why I feel so sick or why I felt so moved or why I felt so, you know. Um, I can't work out what happened narratively that made me feel that. So therefore, I'm going to forget that I yeah, had that response. That experience. Yeah, but really, that's that's really what we're interested in is the body and the emotional response, mm. and and creating kind of an intense feeling mm. from the stage. Yeah, um, we've almost reached the end of our time today. Um, unfortunately, thanks for joining us, Rachel and Bridget. Um, we're so, yeah, what's the details of the rest of Moral Panic? Um, they've got a show tonight at 6pm and then they're on tomorrow from Wednesday to Saturday. Not tomorrow, next week. Oh, sorry, next week. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> Wednesday to Saturday. Yeah, Wednesday to Saturday. There's a relaxed performance on Saturday um, and we have an Auslan interpreted performance on Thursday. Yeah. And um, you can get tickets through Darabin Arts. Yeah. So just on until next Saturday and then... Everyone goes to bed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just briefly, anything, any other plans after Moral Panic or holiday? I'm going to Hawaii, yeah. like quite literally. <laughs> Bridget's going to Hawaii and I get to stay in her beautiful house and look after her dog. So basically we both get a holiday. But we do have another work that's in development that we're reading next year. Um, yeah, yeah, so we're looking forward to that. Cool. Thanks so much for being on Querying the Air. Thanks so um, much for having us. And you can tune in to Querying the Air next Sunday from 3 to 4 and you can send us a message on our Twitter or Facebook or at queeringtheair@gmail.com. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.